in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Curious Dimension podcast, where we discuss sacred geometry, esoteric texts and wisdom, ancient civilizations, and what I consider to be the biggest story in human history, UFO disclosure. Today, my guest is Jill Purse. Jill is a British voice teacher, family constellations therapist, and author. In the 1970s, Purse developed a new way of working with the voice, introducing the teaching group overtone chanting, producing a single note whilst amplifying the vocal harmonics. Jill pioneered the international sound healing movement through the rediscovery of ancient vocal techniques, the teaching of overtone chanting, power of group chant, and the spiritual potential of the voice as a magical instrument for healing and meditation. She pioneered the practice of healing family and ancestral traumas, with her healing family and ancestor in resonant family constellations, and the activation of the mandala as a living practice with her extended mandala ceremonies. Her 1974 book about the spiral in sacred tradition and art and psychology, The Mystic Spiral, Journey of the Soul, was a seminal influence. The Bishop of California describes her contribution to the 1990s installation of the Labyrinth Grace Cathedral, San Francisco, she helped inspire the birth of the modern labyrinth. Jill's groundbreaking work with the labyrinth was inspiring, informative, and important. It could not have been done without her work. I hope everybody's been enjoying the shows. I've got a lot more lined up here for 2024. You guys have a second. You hit that like button. Hit that subscribe button. Leave a comment below. Really helps out the channel. And uh, we've got a lot more for you guys here in 2024. Thanks for tuning in. Without further ado, my honor to welcome the great Jill Purse. Jill, thank you so much for, for doing this today. How was your holiday? Oh, it's good. Yeah, it was a riotous. We had 15 people for Christmas and 17 to 18 people for Boxing Day and lots of music and musicians. The world's greatest bath violinist and her husband, who's a brilliant cellist and Cosmo and Merlin and Elf. It was wonderful. Old music. Oh my God. Sounds like a, a really fun time uh, over there. I, I'm really fascinated, Jill, by the overtone chanting and your healing voice work that you've been doing for a number of years. C could you start by just telling me a little bit about how you got into this, where this came from, and then maybe we can get into some of the details of, of what it actually is? Well, I, I was, it's funny enough, like over Christmas, I had a cousin who came around and reminded me that my grandfather played the organ and had an enormous house with an organ in it. And my uncle had a, an organ scholarship to Oxford. And, and my mother, we had three concert grand pianos in the house. And the joke was that she had pianos before she had children. And I, and I realized that between the four of us, that's Rupert and myself, Manning and Cosmo, we've got six pianos. And so it's insane. And Anyway, and I, so I, I first got into this because I realized that we had gone silent. I started very early. I started in the seventies. And at that point to join a choir, you had to sing in tune, have an audition. It was quite a big deal. You had to really be quite serious reading music. It's quite elitist. Only few people read music. And as I said, you had to sing in tune and so forth. So I realized that there was an enormous gap where people had been, where sacred music had been hijacked over the years by the professionals who did read music. And, and I know this because I lived in the early 70s. I lived with the very famous German composer, Karl Heinz Stockhausen in Germany. And I've always been embedding the professional musical world. But it's interesting, the word amateur comes from the, the word to love something. And the inference of that is that if you're a professional, you don't love it. Right. And, and so I realized that there are all these people who loved music but felt inadequate and felt that they had to record professionals and put them in their ears and earphones in a desperate attempt to get inside when traditionally music came from the inside outside. 
and people praise the divine because they embedded themselves in something much larger than themselves, giving themselves meaning and praising the divine. And then with good manners, praising the divine before asking famous. So I, I call these the three Ps, praise, petition, and participation. So you pr first you praise the divine with chanting. And I think the word singing and chanting in the Bible and praising, I think there are sort of 400 references to the and soul in the Bible. So praising the divine and then asking favors, petitioning, and, and then on a more sophisticated level, participating, becoming one with the divine. And, and sound uniquely allows us to become one with something else. And because we know increasingly the world is a resonant one and everything is resonant. I, my son and Rupert, my husband, are both scientists. And they, interestingly, many years ago, I was very influenced in the 60s by a man called Hans Jelly, who was a student of Rudolf Steiner and who followed in the footsteps of people like Kiadni and showing the effect of sound on matter. So he would have all these resonating plates with different materials of different viscosities and powders and lycopodium powders. And then he would vibrate them and show how you would then get all the patterns that you see around you in nature. And I was talking about this in the 80s to one of my students in a workshop, and he went away and he built a machine, which he called a cymoscope, a cymoscope, to show these patterns. And interestingly, so, so that was in the 80s, so interestingly, a few years ago, my husband and my son, Merlin, worked one of these machines to try and did a red paper about trying to classify the different patterns that came out with different sounds. And this has a very ancient lineage. Leonardo looked at the patterns in, of dust in vibration and so on. So we can see that the world is one of resonance. To resonate means to resound. And this we do with the overtone chanting, which I'll talk in a minute. So I realized that the world is one of resonance and we need to resonate with that world in order to be in harmony with it. And, and the Tibetans talk about body, voice, and mind, and the voice is the area of resonance which coordinates the body or the physical with the spiritual and always sound is seen as that which, which. And actually, Boethius, medieval philosopher Boethius talked about musica humana, which means what we think of now as a psychology, musica mundana, what we think of as astronomy, and music instrumentalis, which was music as we think of it now. And the role of music instrumentalis was to harmonize the music of the heavens with the music of the soul, with astronomy and psychology. So that was the function of sound, of the music. Hmm. So I realized that, that all this had gone by the way. And, uh, and I, so my question really was, if we're going to sing again, what are we going to sing? And actually, I, real, I also remembered as a child, I had a very eccentric father. He was a surgeon, but he loved water and he loved messing about it in water. So everything he did had these crazy things with water. And we, on one occasion, we were staying in the west coast of Ireland, and I must have been about five or six, and we set off at night to this island. Everyone else was long in bed except for these three women going home to their island, and my brother and my sister, and my brother and my mother and my father, four of us. And all of a sudden, a storm came up, violent storm. And we all thought we were going to drown. It was, we were terrified. It was clear we were going to drown. We weren't going to arrive. And then all of a sudden, these women dressed in black, these three women at the back of the boat started a wailing chant. And in that moment, our terror became ecstasy, it became bliss. And how and old are you at this point? Maybe five, six. It left a depression. I, it, it was, I think, the origin of everything I do. This terror became ecstasy. The wind abated and the storm subsided. And we got, and I think this experience of the power of sound transformed the elements and our emotions both. Hmm. Or our emotions, but then even the elements, I think, is what really got wound its way deep into my unconscious and probably is the origin of everything. Mm. So in the case, I started to ask the question to realize that I had to introduce people to their voices again. People who had been told to stand at the back and mouth because they apparently couldn't sing in tune or whatever. And everybody else, professional musicians who played an instrument, but 
didn't sing or and everybody in between. And my question really was, if we're going to sing again, what are we going to sing? And I then had through two channels discovered this form of chanting from Central Asia. So I'd been long studying with Tibetan Buddhists and, and I studied with the chant master of the Gita monks who do this form of chanting when they chant on a single note and they amplify the internal structure of the sound, the component parts of the sound, which are called the harmonics, so that they're loud and the fundamental note. And in the seventies, the first from 72, 71 to 74, I was living in Germany with Karl Stockhausen. And he had written a piece called Stimmung for six singers who did a very simple form of vocal harmonics. So I had it through the Western art musical tradition, as well as the very archaic and ancient musical tradition of Tibet. And this seemed to me so fundamental that it was the way to go. Because firstly, if people had been told stand back in Mao Dead or if they said that would couldn't sing in tune, they could at least sing on one note. And this form of chanting is only on one note, so you can sing on one note. But then by changing the shape of the resonant cavities, you emphasize, you, you amplify the internal structural elements, components of the sound, so they're not in the fundamental. So this is a bit like looking at a rainbow. So we know that white light contains the colors of the rainbow, but we don't see them. We see them if the, if the, the light goes through a prism. If we have a crystal hanging in our window or there's raindrops, then we see a rainbow. And it's very similar. The sound is, we don't normally hear the component sets and notes of the sound. They, they make up the quality of the sound. They tell us what's making the sound. What we don't hear them as articulated separate elements. But by changing the shape of the resonant cavity, using the mouth as a filter, just as we use the light, uh, prism for the light, we're able to um, uh, make audible the separate notes of the harmonics. And this is very powerful because if you learn to sing, if you have singing lessons, if you want to sing professionally, one of the hardest things to communicate is resonance. And all sorts of metaphors are used by singing teachers to try and communicate okay, that point. Yes. And, and so if you, but if you've learned the harmonics, you, you understand resonance in its most extreme form because you can articulate the separate component parts of the sound itself and make them more. Mm -hmm. um, so I know she's going to be very interested when this show comes out. Um, that's interesting because when I started, nobody's ever heard of such a thing. And, and that's many years ago and I've never tried to own it or, but people have run with it. And so now it's quite widespread and those days, nobody ever done anything with the boys professional musicians and so it was really new and i'm sure you had a few people back in those days that thought to themselves maybe i'll give it a try and then were possibly shocked at the the results they were seeing and, and the feedback they were getting i was wondering if maybe you could talk about some of those special cases where you saw mind-blowing effects and healings that were taking place because i know that does happen Absolutely. On one occasion, I had, I had a woman who had very severe Parkinson's disease. And I, strangely enough, I had a, a professor of, who was a Parkinsonian. And right at the end of the workshop, he stood up and said, oh, but this is so interesting, you're vibrating the brain. And I, I said, yes. And he said, that's what we do with electric shock treatment. I tried to suggest that this was a more benign way of vibrating the brain, which of course it does. brain likes to be vibrating. Anyway, this woman was Parkinson's after the workshop. She said that her walking had improved her speaking because one of the things that happens is, firstly, you, walking is very difficult speaking. Your whole voice cavity starts very shaky and you lose power of the voice. She said that her friends had said that her voice had transformed, her walking transformed. And that's so extraordinary. And then, and then I had somebody who had this strange condition from birth where your eyes are flickering and I forget the name of it. And after just two days of chanting with me, this was cured and she'd had it. She was in her sixties already and she'd had it all her life. And then another, well, long before COVID, I had somebody who had, who'd lost sense of smell and taste, which of now, of course, everybody knows about, but in those days it was quite unusual. And again, she'd had it congenitally, she'd had it from birth and after a few days it came back. And there are many examples of 
of the different ways that I can't even think of them. There are so many ways that people have their lives transformed. They've had an after a, a few sessions, is it like a weekend? And then you'll, they'll, people will start to notice like the, Hey, I'm, I'm feeling this or, or I'm able to communicate this. Is it usually after a couple of days or a week or? It can be anything. It can be after a couple of days, after doing a two day workshop, for example, people's lives are changed and people start, people who've been told to stand at the back, it's, I start training to be singers and start right. joining choirs. And now of course there are lots of choirs in those days, as I said, had to pass all these rigorous tests, but. Nowadays, community choirs and my, my daughter-in-law's mother started a work choir in Vancouver and Victoria called the Getting Higher Choir, which I think is a lovely title for a choir. But now more recently, they're discovering all kinds of things that, that the voice does. Like it, it like stimulates known as the happy chemicals, all the brain chemistry and like dope and serotonin, endorphins, oxytocin. And then, of course, it stimulates famously now, and this is all the rage, the vagus nerve, which is this nerve which travels throughout the body. And it has been into profound healing emotionally, psychologically, physically, in every possible way. And then another thing it does, it stimulates nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator, so it lowers the blood pressure. So there have been, and of course, it, it regulates the heartbeat and so on. So there are all kinds of physical things that are transformed by using the voice. I guess I've been so interested in trying to prove them myself. Interestingly, I, I worked with many scientists uh, in the 70s, but then in the 80s, it, I married one and I felt that I couldn't let him get on with all the provings and I, 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 I worked and didn't feel the need to do that. You guys must have such amazing conversations. Oh, yeah. But I think definitely. But I think that one of the, one of the main things about about the the most healing thing is being in the present moment because our anxiety comes from regretting the past and dreading the future, uh, and the future which has not happened because the past you didn't so you didn't do something in the past so the future and so your life is eroded by this non-existent time past and future and we know that the only existing and real thing is the present. And the thing about chanting is that you can only chant in the present. That's the only way you can. But you can still chant in the present and you can think and be anxious about the future. But if you create a circuit of tension by listening to the sound that you're making while you're making it, then you can only be in the present. And that really is the key. Mm. So it's like mindfulness, being mindful of things around you. You're doing the thing that you're being mindful of. So creating the circuit of attention, so making a continuous sound and listening, absorbing, not using listening as a, as a sort of criticizing, as a judgmental process, but as an integrative process where you're using your hearing to integrate with the sound that you're making. And in this way, you can only be in the present and the present is there's no anxiety, all is known, all is, all healing happens. It's where we all long to be. And, but. We live in a world where we have, you know, we have a past, present, and future, where we have discussivity and language, everything is based on duality. And, you know, we have this strange dichotomy of knowing that actually all is one and there is no separation, but living in a world of separation. And working with sound allows us to experience both of those elements and to realize what it's like to be present. And, and so when I'm teaching people, I'm able to induct people into this experience of the present while at the same time teaching them a method for them to be able to do it. It's amazing. I always think about this word chant versus enchanting. Could you talk a little about that? Because when, when I hear chanting, I also obviously I hear the word enchanting, but maybe you're teaching a person how to be within that, to do it themselves. What is your perspective on, on those two words and how they relate? Well, they, they are certainly related and people have, everybody says, oh, I'm so disenchanted. And I said, remedy to being disenchanted is to chant. Yeah. It means it made magical through sound, incantation, chanting. And particularly in the English language, we have, we have separate words for singing, which is full melody, and then chanting, which is reduced melody, intonation, intoning, which is no melody at all. Whereas in the Latin languages, they don't. There's no distinction between chanting and singing, for example, in the language. But in English, there definitely is. And, and, and the effect is absolutely extraordinary. Hmm. That's interesting. 
a mutual acquaintance of, of ours, uh, Scott Onstott, has a book where he writes about what he calls the gap or the Pythagorean comma, which I know you've spoken about before, which is maybe actually a feature. Can you speak to that a little bit about how that is incorporated into what you're doing? Because he, he claims that gap is actually a feature of reality and has a function. Could, could you speak to that a little bit? I think he's right because it's a spiral. Traditional tuning went from one note to the note, five notes above it. Yeah. And that was called a fifth. And from that note, you go the fifth above that, five notes above that, five notes above that. And that when you should reach the octave, you don't. You overlap it by a quarter of a semitone or the Pythagorean comma, as it's um, In other words, it's a spiral. And I wrote a book called The Mystic Spiral, so I know all about spirals. And so what happened in the 17th century was, with the popularity of keyboard instruments, this couldn't happen anymore because you couldn't tune anything with a fixed tuning board, like piano, with this form of tuning because you had to somehow get rid of this overlap. And so the overlap was put inside the octave, which meant that all the intervals in the octave were too big or too small, too straight or too squashed. And in other words, very slightly out of tune. And it turned the spiral into the eternal dull round, but going round and round where the beginning and the end meet, whereas what Scott talks about is this overlap, is a spiral which is organic and occurs in nature in all places. But you, in, with the invention and the popularity of keyboard instruments, you couldn't have this. And so since the 17th century, all music's been out of tune for this reason, because this overlap has been incorporated into the octave. But when we did the overtone chanting, you overcome this because the sounds that you make audible by amplifying them so that they become distinctly audible above the fundamental, which is one loop, and out of which they come, these notes can only be in tune and they are pure, they are pure fifths and pure intervals. When we chant in this way, we can really become sound in mind and body. So these expressions like enchantment or being sound in mind and body or being in tune, not being highly strung, all these words embedded in language are very revealing. And to be sound in mind and body, to be sound really means to be healthy and in tune. Um, so I think what happened in the 17th century was a problem. And, and I think that the, what, the only way that we know, when you have instruments, um, stringed instruments, for example, like a, a violin, a cello, viola, and so on, where they the fixed tuning, then you can do what you like. Or with a voice, a cappella, with no accompaniment, you can be in tune. But Anything else. So if you've got an orchestra or, or, you know, you can't and you have to adjust your tuning. But the idea was when it was discovered and there were all kinds of methods that were, this tempered scale was the final one that was chosen. But there were all kinds of other ones that were posed. And Bach made it popular in the preludes and fugues for the well-tempered clavier. And so he showed how you could now play in all these different keys and, and be in tune. And, but the fact is what, when people did this, they realized that we hadn't got the sensitivity to identify just this little bit of out of tuneness that is, has been introduced into me. By doing this, by losing this overlap and putting it back in the octave. So overtone charting is a way of overcoming this. And it's a wonderful thing because the sounds that we make can only be in tune. So you really can tune the body and tune the mind in a way that you That's amazing. So I don't want you to give away any trade secrets here if you don't want to, but how do you, so I'm not a, I'm not a trained vocalist. My, my two brothers are, are very great musicians, guitarists, and they also sing. So they would probably understand this, but could you explain to someone who has no idea how to train the voice? How do you make those distinct single note sounds when you're making those chanted? Is there like a position of the tongue and the mouth? How do you, how do we do that? Sure. It's all about changing the shape of the resonant chemistry. And so the way we do that normally is when we're speaking, our speaking voice is made up of two components, very crudely put, what yes. we call vowels and consonants. So vowels are what happens when the air comes up and is not interrupted, but is shaped by the shape of the cavity. So all the vowels have a different shape of cavity, and those are the harmonics. 
And in order to make speech comprehensible, we interrupt it with the teeth and the tongue. And these are noise sounds. And these, when you analyze them electronically, the waveforms are chaotic. When you analyze electronically the vowel sounds, they are purely ordered. Mm-hmm. And so the vowel sounds, if you extend them, which you do when you sing, you can only extend the vowel sounds, then you're extending that quality, that, that component part of the sound, which is supremely ordered and which is the harmonics because they are pure tone. They're like sine waves. So um, it's all about changing the shape of the resonant cavity. So when I teach people, I start by uh, exaggerating the vowel sounds because that's what they know. That's what people know. That's how we are understood. And then at the more sophisticated level, acoustically, we start moving the tongue because you can make more audible harmonics by moving the tongue, shape, changing the shape of the mouth by moving the tongue than you can by doing by changing the vowel sounds. But basically, in order to do this kind of sound making, it's about changing the shape of the resonant cavity because this is so, which is why resonance means to resound. So you have to contain the sound long enough for it to be able to resound. If it just escapes, then there's nothing to be done. But so you have to contain it. So you make a sort of resonant containing vessel of your mouth and then change the shape. Interesting. And do you find the, the most profound effects are when you have groups of people or when? somebody learns these techniques and they just continue the work at home by themselves? Or I suppose if you have a group of people, um, you can go longer because you could take a break. Is that true? Is Well, one of the, one of the wonderful things about chanting in the group is sound famously creates every form has its own sound and you get the sort of limitations are created by sound. And so one of the things that sound does, it dissolves those separations. The famous one is the wine glass. If you wet your finger and round it round the rim of a wine glass, it sings a note. That's the note that you want to address to the wine glass if you want to shatter the wine glass. So the sound of a thing is the key to its own dissolution. So when we're making sound together in a group, you dissolve the boundaries between people and you create a very profound community very quickly. It's much easier to chant in a group because, as you say, you could take breaks. Breathing is, we have a lot of hang-ups about breathing. To expire means to breathe out, just to die. So when you're chanting in a group, there's always somebody that's breathing. So you don't feel that kind of sense of responsibility for holding the sound. You can stop and listen and carry on. So chanting in a group is also easier. Um, And also the momentum carries you forward. Um, chant, doing the overtune on your own is quite hard work because you have to sustain it. Um, but both are uh, equally valuable. What, when, when you're chanting in a group, you it's a one uh, chanting in a group. The reason people love singing in choirs is because it's very exhilarating to share sound with other people, and so it's a wonderful thing. There's nothing quite like making sound with other people. Wow. I'd love to hear a little version of this. Do you have a, a clip that you could play for us or you can hear what this sounds like so the audience can have a, a sense of, of what this is? Absolutely. amazing that's done with just the human voice it's when i hear that it almost sounds like it's made by some sort of electronic synth but that's all just human voice recording right yeah and not many actually it was done i when covid happened i realized i was going to go have to start teaching online and i've never recorded chants before because i always felt they had to fly in the wind and be mm. be eye of the sun so i got my son cosmo sheldrake who's a musician to record as and we were away up in on holiday, just the five of us. And so that's just myself, my son, Merlin Sheldrake, my son, Cosmo Sheldrake, 
my husband and Rupert Shelley and one other person and that and that's us chanting together. Yeah. So you're gonna get hit family hit. That is so amazing. Jill, that's uh, the work you're doing just seems so important. To have this available to somebody that may want to, even if they're not, even if they don't have a, a medical condition, maybe they have something that's just bothering them subconsciously, this can tap into the subconscious maybe in a way that through traditional therapy and just talking it out may take, may, may not take as long because you're connecting into the deepest part of someone's psyche. I, I feel the same way about doing mandalas and, and geometric patterns or you're connecting with someone in a way that just talking it out in your left brain may not get there as efficiently. And, 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 and many years ago, I had, some, I had a doctor in one of my workshops who said that they worked with Alzheimer's patients in a mental hospital, one of the main ones in, in, in London, mm. and would work with them. And so I went to the whole, to this principal mental hospital in London and, and worked with an entire ward of Alzheimer's patients. And it was like, opening a bottle of champagne. It was completely extensive. Nothing else would get through to them. And, mm-hmm. and music, and particularly Everton Chanti, it was absolute magic. Wow. And so we're musical beings. And if you can tap into that, you can cure anything. That's what Albert Einstein famously has that quote, the future of medicine will be the, um, the medicine of frequency. So... It's very fascinating. So your two boys, Merlin and Cosmo, which one is the scientist? Is that Merlin? Merlin, yes. And here is Entangled Life, which is a bestseller about the sun-gold mycelium universe. Very good. He must be friends with us. Is that Paul Stamets? But anyway, we, every summer, we teach on this island in British Columbia, island off an island off Vancouver Island, between Vancouver Island and the mainland. We have a piece of land there that we, that had been clear-cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we replanted it and Paul Stamets has the next piece. So we know him very well. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yeah. I followed some of his work. Yeah. Fungus and, and mushrooms is it's an amazing topic to dig into. Um, and then Manin's book is extraordinary. Entangled. What's his book called? Entangled Life. Entangled Life. Okay. I'll have to pick that one up. And then Cosmo uh, Sheldrake is a musician, a brilliant musician. He uses a lot of... The sounds of nature, which he transforms into music, and there's a wonderful voice, and so he uses endangered sounds of endangered fish and endangered birds, and both boys are very concerned with the rights of nature and involved in a group. Cosmo already sends his publishing to community of birds to help them and stuff, but but he's a wonderful musician, and they're they're both musicians. Yeah, so. They have two amazing parents, so I'm sure whatever they're into, they're going to be wildly successful and fascinating human beings, to say the least. Love to move into maybe talking a little bit about mandalas now and some of your work with mandalas. Uh, I know Carl Jung famously said there was significant benefits to people drawing out mandalas. I practice a little bit of that myself with some geometric structures and creating Metatron's cube and making all of the platonic solids. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to a little bit about your workshops and what you do with your mandala therapy. Yeah, mandala is very interesting. I spent over 45 years studying in Tibetan Buddhism. And I suppose you could say that the mandala originates there. Not totally sure if it originates. I think it probably does. And there are three kinds. One is, and it's all to do with rotation. So one is rotating around a stupa. So if you ever go somewhere like Kathmandu, for example, and you go to Bodhana, at dawn and at, in, in the morning and the evening, the entire Buddhist community will be rotating clockwise around this massive bulbous kind of, takes about, I forget, many, several, how was it going to go around? I can't remember, but it's huge anyway. Yeah. And, the, and at the same time, they are spinning prayer wheels. They're turning wheels. At the same time, the old ones are doing their manas, which is, again, a spironic process. Yeah. So this, it's, like a, it's like a massive kind of rotatory device, really, energizing. Anyway, and then you have another kind. They're also derived from, sometimes if you go to the Jimenez, you go to a monastery, and there's been some lama or monk who spent the whole of his life building some palace of a deity up in the attic somewhere 
And this is, again, it's a kind of structure, but it's a palace in the center of which is the deity. And then mandala, the diagram of the mandala traditionally is a diagram with some kind of a deity in the middle. Now, the deity is a sort of manifestation of some form of enlightenment. That's how I see it, rather than as a sort of being. You see it as a different manifestations of the different possibilities of the modes of enlightenment. They all carry their own. And, um, and then in, in these paintings, they're called, in, in Tibet, they're called tankas. There are four, four directions and a center. So there are five directions. Always you enter in the bottom. It's a sort of diagram. You enter at the bottom, which is usually blue, which is the east. And then you spiral clockwise. So again, it's this rotatory movement. It's a, so activate. So the image of a spiral of a mandala is a, is a is an invitation to rotate. You rotate through the years, through the day, through the elements, through the afflictive emotions. For example, east is at the bottom, and then from east you go to south. From south you go to west, and from west you go to north, and from north you go into the center, and then. And then the colors usually are blue and so, well, sometimes in traditional mandala, the blue and the white are exchanged, but let's say it's blue in the East. And this is when they're also related to the development of the senses. First of all, sensation and an awareness of the other, then sensation of the other. And then gradually you're moving like Libra to the West where the other, you deal with the other and then. And then ultimately consciousness in the center. So they, they're moving from pure encounter to, into consciousness. And then they're through the elements. So in the East, you have the, here you see you're dealing with afflictive emotions. So the mm. afflictive emotion is in the East is anger. And the, so you work with that. So what, what, I, what I do in the mandala is I had to group become the mandala. So you might have a hundred people, for example, and you have, Four, I create four circles of people, all of whom are working at once. And we do the practice of whatever the deity is. So I've worked with many forms of Tara, for example. And so we have this half hour chanting practice, you know, intense practice. And so when people are working, in, so you have these four circles working together. And when you're working in the East, you're dealing with anger. And so you're trying to, and you are, and I have people working in this way, transform anger into its wisdom. And its wisdom is mirror-like wisdom. In other words, anger is, is a reaction, a reactive passion to things not being as we want them or hope them to be. Okay. So all our afflictive emotions, unlike Jung or Freud, where these afflictions are kind of part of us, unchanging. In Tibetan Buddhism, they're seen as erroneous response to what is. So they, the, the, which is wonderful because it means you can change them. If you see things as they are, you no longer have to react with anger. So then, so after about a day of working with these people, moving on every half hour, working with the four directions, within the four directions, people move on to the south, which is about nourishment, sun at midday, it's eloquence, and so forth. And when you're starting this, how complicated is the, the pattern, the structure that you're dealing with? So you're starting at a certain direction and, and you spend some time working at that and understanding the symbology and the meditation of that part. And then you move to another part. How intricate is each part when you're actually physically drawing these things? Is it pretty involved? Yes. It's in the, explaining the mandala to the group is the hardest part, mm -hmm. but once it gets going, it's, it just starts flowing and people start, the practice gets easier and easier and repetition is magical. And mm -hmm. I have to deal with the emotions. So when they're in the, it, they spend about a day in each direction. And so when they're dealing with, say it's white Tara, which is about healing, for example. So they write labels and they put them on the four directions in the circle they're in and they gradually work their way around dealing with them. And then they move on to the next one. And so people are dealing with the afflictive emotion in the center, in the circle, and everybody permutates with everybody else. It's incredibly hard to describe it because it's a whole it's a week-long experience, and you end up where you began. Mm -hmm. And and it's all about sort of repetition and dealing with the, the afflictive emotion, transforming them, and then who you're working with, what, where, in which direction. And I once had I once asked somebody to map their journey, 
which I never would ask them again because it's because it means you can't really be present. But they did this amazing map of who they'd work with what, in which direction, at what moment in time, and it was just un- phenomenal. Anyway, so people who have experienced the mandala in Tibetan Buddhism find this completely mind-blowing because it, you experience... So having gone through the four directions, the people then work with me in the center in white, which is stupidity or absolute perfection wisdom. So again, it's always the opposite. And then they go to, the, I give them a white scarf, a kasa, and then they go back to the beginning. Gradually, the whole mandala, we all wear the colors of the directions we're in. So blue, yellow, red, and, and then actually the whole, man, the whole group of people become white. And by the end, the whole thing is white. And yeah, and so the mandala, so Jung, um, he had this very interesting plotting of the psyche. He saw the, he described it as a circle with the unconscious underneath the horizon and thinking, feeling, sensation, int- intuition as being the four directions. And different people would have different of those in the consciousness or halfway or unconscious. And he saw individuation, as he called it, bringing that which is in the unconscious into the conscious. And he only saw the possibility of consciousness as a result of transforming what was in the unconscious, the shadow, as he called it. And so, yeah, he had a very interesting way of describing it. I think people have, I think there's been a lot of development since. He was working in the early days with what be interesting about Buddhism through the diaspora, we've had contact with a living tradition. So I'm sure there was all kinds of things happening in Egypt and so on, but we don't know what they are. Whereas with Tibetan Buddhism, we've been allowed to understand these practices by the unfortunate nature of their diaspora. So mm-hmm. they've come out, they're sharing their teachings and that the mandala is phenomenal. And I think what I've done with the mandala is even more phenomenal, really, because it makes sense of it for Westerners and for practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism, mm-hmm. so that they can actually not only, you know, like you draw them or have them in their dreams or gradually go towards the center, but actually physically work with all of the senses. So visually with color, with sound, with movement, through, the, through repetition, through mantra, through everything all combined. So it's taking it to a whole other level. But I had to stop doing them with COVID because part of the practice is very intimate. You're chanting in each other's faces at a certain point. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't seem appropriate. To con- I did, I've done about 35 of them over the years because I did two a year. Mm-hmm. But I, and the ones I used to do in the autumn were related to practices of conscious dying and the spring were related to Tenpi Torah. But these had stopped because of, because of COVID. And so now I'm concentrating on the other aspect of my work, which is family constellations. Which I'm very interested in. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. And what is that? And how does that work? Again, it's completely fascinating. It's a way of working with transgenerational trauma. So very often the things that, that we have to deal with in life have nothing to do with us, really. They are things that have come down to us through things that happened to our ancestors or previous generations or other members of the family. So when there's any kind of interruption in what notionally might be considered a normal life, of course, there isn't such a thing as a normal, but so early deaths, suicides, murders, emigrations, incarcerations, illnesses, access, dodgy dealing, abortions, addictions, anything which interrupts or has in previous generations the normal sort of development of a life causes a trauma to be held in the field of the family and ancestors and is a very, is highly conservative. And so it just gets passed on down the generations. And so people find themselves doing things that make no sense in relation to their normal life. And, and so what the work is astonishing and it's a group phenomenon, it's a field phenomenon. So we're tuning into the field of the family and ancestors. And so when I work with a group, for example, face-to-face, let's say, then I do it ceremonially. I, I like to work with ceremony and ritual because one of the reasons I do that is because if you go somewhere and make changes in your life, when you go back to your own community, they don't know you've changed. And so all the constraints around which you were embedded act on you in such a way that you are unable to be any different from how you were. 
But if you're witnessed, if what you're doing, you're witnessed, the whole point of ceremony is you're witnessed. Hence, if you get married, for example, there's somebody there who goes behind at a certain point and writes down, I witness so-and-so going from right. being unmarried. And so, the, so that's absolutely central part. And mm. except there's destination weddings where people get married. And in fact, a friend of mine, one of my students did the, uh, came across this wonderful correlative paper, which was how, what about longevity in a marriage? Mm-hmm. They looked into everything, the size of the cake, how much <laughs> was spent on the wedding, how long the parents had known each other, if the parents had known each other, how long the people had known each other, how long was the honeymoon, and how many people were invited to the wedding. And the one correlation, the one item which cut, co- co- so it, the more money you spent on the wedding was had a negative correlation in a sense. But the one thing that did have a positive correlation was how many people you invited to the wedding. In other words, how many people witnessed you going from being unmarried to being married. Mm-hmm. So because you know that they know that it's going back and going from being unmarried to being married is a big deal. Yeah. You know, so I like to work ceremonially. And so when I do the family constellations, I do it ceremonially as well. So I, when I choose somebody, I ask them how they're hurting. And that can be emotionally, physically, that they're not, that they don't feel adequate or their, their children don't speak to them or their knee hurts or it could be anything. And mm. Or I want a child or I want to find a partner. Or, but they just articulate it. And then we have a kind of ritual exchange. And then I, they acknowledge the group. They go around doing a kind of very archaic dance, which is evoking the ancestors and so on. Mm. And then I have them identify, um, they address each person. So then they choose people from the group to represent their mother, father, brother, sisters. So their, their immediate birth family, if they're working with their birth family of origin, or if they're working with their current family, which I usually do later, then their partner and their children. So let's say it's the birth family. They choose people to represent them. So they choose somebody, a naive representative from the group to represent their mother, their father. And I always say, it doesn't matter who you choose. They don't need to look like them. They can be men or women. It doesn't matter. And then they arrange them in the room to represent, in a timeless way, the relationship between them. And then the work starts. And then I see what's going on. And I might bring somebody in, like the down. And so the whole pattern through time evolves and transforms. And there's some, um, usually an amazing revelation, which is some kind of healing of what they had identified as the issue in the beginning. And what's so interesting in this work is that I'm, for example, my son Cosmo, when he was in, he's now in his thirties, but when he was in his twenties, he participated in these for the first time as a representative. Mm. And I Two brothers who'd done a lot of work with me. One was doing his PhD in music in Cambridge at the university. And one was, his brother was working for the, oh, what's it called? Anyway, they were, they both worked with me a lot. And so, so. And um, so the one who was doing the music chose my son, Cosmo, to represent his brother who was also there, who was the vulnerable one at that point. And my son had never done it before, never witnessed, didn't know what was going on. And... He said, you are so, and I watched him. He was my son. So I watched him, known him intimately for 20 odd years at that point. So I watched him. He collapsed, he collapsed up and then down. And then I could see his brain working. saying, this is ridiculous. Then Cosmo, this is ridiculous. Then Cosmo. So he went, it was like, he was becoming another person, but his logical mind wouldn't allow it because he knew that he was actually himself. And so he went between them and then finally he got it and he let go and he remained representing this other person who was watching. Amazing. This is what happens. So it's impossible to explain. I don't know. Nobody knows how it happens, but it's like when we're really present, if you, if people try and act what the other person is or says or does or Mm. has, then it doesn't work. Mm. And if they say channeler, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So it's, but if they just drop everything away, then it works. And some people are quicker at it in the beginning, but the whole point about doing that work is it allows you to trust that you're able to do it. And then people get better because they trust that they, that they just have to let go and they, they become this person and they have to trust what comes up. 
And I watch people just transform and become other people before my eyes, people I know. And it's astonishing. And I don't know, nobody knows what happens or how we have this ability, but we do. Yeah. And then defend me, I'm able to, I have to be in the present. If I have any preconception at this and that, it doesn't work. So I have to dance with novelty and the revelation of it in the moment. And then I can guide it and see what's going on and reveal. I reveal what's going on by, by asking people to move or say the odd thing. And so people see the family from, they see, and I do it with figures online and it works just as well. And so people see the family through times with the eyes of multiple members and talking therapy, you can only talk about what you know already. That's the nature of talk, but, mm. but, but yes, because it's movement and there isn't that much talking, mm. actually see what you drill deeply down into the unconscious where most of our problems lie. Right. And it's miraculous. Most people probably aren't even aware of the underlying trauma that they've possibly been passed down to, passed down to from. And yeah, the only way to get at those is to go deep within the psyche and you have to use the other forms of these other vehicles to tap into that. Talking about it, like you said, is only going to get what you consciously know. And yeah. if these problems are deep underneath that, there's no way to tap into that other than these other forms. Just to say, I love doing the work because I have to be present, which is where I want to be anyway. Mm -hmm. This is amazing, Jill. I, I can't wait to check out your website and, and see more of your work. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. C could you tell us a little bit about where to find you, what, what you have coming down the pipe? What's, what, what, what is Jill Purse up to? Happy. Okay, so my website is healingvoice.com, healingvoice.com. And I'll put a and, link for that in the description. Yeah. And I have loads of videos and conversations and uh, masses of information on that. And you can join the video links or, I don't know, what's it called? YouTube, they, YouTube mm -hmm. whatever. And then I'm teaching online. So I, because of COVID, I never thought it possible, but anyway, I am and it works. So one month I do a voice workshop online with all the chants recorded. So we chant, group chant. Then the other month I do family constellations online. And again, it's amazing if it works. And those are every other month and that's all on the homepage of my website. And so I have one a month and then. I'm just beginning to do a little bit of face-to-face -face work. At the end of, on the 27th of April in London, I'm doing a week intensive face-to-face -face of the family constellations. And that's amazing. I did one at the end of October and it was magical. And I have Rupert Sheldrake, my husband, give a little talk about the epigenetics, which we didn't talk about. Oh, uh, I'd love to get into that too sometime. In relation to morphic fields, which is very much this, the scientists grasping at how there is there are changes and as a result of... Do you have a little bit of time to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I can okay. do that. Yeah. So there's a week intensive at the end of April, 27th of April to the 3rd of May. And then I'll probably do another one at the, end, at the beginning of November as well. And those are the week intensive resident and non-residential in London, but it's in a really nice part of London and there are masses of Airbnbs and, and it's a wonderful week. And then on the 27th of July, I think it is, 27th of July, it's Friday, or maybe the 26th, it, in, and doing a, a five-day of this work in, on an island in British Columbia in the inside passage between Vancouver Island and mainland called Cortez Island, and it's in Hollyhock. It's, it's called, the, the place is called Hollyhock. And so I will be doing it there in North America. Um, and we had a no-fly year, so I didn't do it this year. Mm. And, but that would be five days at the end of July in British Columbia and seven days at the end of April in London and then also in November and then every other month online. Jill, that's amazing. If you have a few minutes, could you talk a little bit about the work with the epigenetics? And does that tie into morphic residence or is that something different? It ties into morphic residence and it also ties into the inheritance of acquired characters. I did a research fellowship with Morris Wilkins in the early 70s. So Morris Wilkins, Watson and Crick got the Nobel Prize for discovering the, the helical structure of DNA, if you remember. Mm. Um, at that time, if you talked about the inheritance of acquired characters, they would laugh. Darwin and Lamarck and Mysenko, all these people 
were believed in the inheritance of acquired characters, things that you inherited through the repeti- the habitual patterns of your life, for example. Okay. So, but then when DNA became the big hot subject, then the idea that anything that you that happened to you in your life could be inherited was dismissed as being beyond the pitch. It was also very political because the it was at a time when sort of people in the West were very afraid of communism. And it was very, Lamarck and I think it was very much the Russian school of biology. They thought, they believed in this. Mm. Um, as everyone, Darwin and beyond, behind, it only became unfashionable when, with the popularity of DNA, where everybody thought everything was in the DNA. Now we know that's nonsense. And I think we had the same DNA as a sort of rice, bit of rice or something. So what people discovered was that people who had suffered any kind of racial trauma, like the famine in Sweden at the end of the last century, or the famine in Holland uh, at the end of the war, or the Holocaust, obviously, or the Irish famine, they found that the descendants of these people suffered emotionally, psychologically, and also had chemical changes. So this, and then with, with then they did experiments with nematode worms, which is a classical way of doing experiments because there are many generations in a short time, they found that these changes were present for 50 generations of nematode worms. And then one of the most interesting experiments was done with called the inheritance fear in mice or something like that is where mice were given an electric shock while being exposed to a very innocent smell of acetone, pinone, something that smelled like flowers or almonds or something. Then they were bred in vitro so that they wouldn't meet their children or grandchildren mice and vice versa. And they found that the children and the grandchildren mice were terrified of the smell. So they found that this, that, you know, what had been acquired in the lifetime of their grandparents was worth passed down. So this is called epigenetics. And so the, the materialistic branch of the sciences are trying to find out why the genes are turned on and off. What's the material process involved? Yeah. Whereas the husband Rupert Sheldrake thinks it's to do with morphic resonance and that it's a much more subtle. We don't really know quite what these fields are, what morphic resonance is, but he thinks that there's no way that it's completely physical, that it has to be with some form of resonance. Yeah. And, and, and this is corroborating the work with family, with the inheritance of all these weird traumas down through the families. It, 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 it's something that we've known for a long time. But, but scientists, as, as always, are catching up and, uh, and finding that the inheritance of acquired characters, as it's known, is, is, is genetics is the subject in the life sciences. Yes. And, and only I think they're not going to find that it's material in the way that all material scientists. Time goes on. We're going to discover more and more. And I think we'll find out that maybe we've been going down the wrong path and that something rediscovered will get us back on track. Um, Jill, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I want to thank you so much for your time spending it here with me today, talking about what you do. I find it endlessly fascinating. Thank you so much. Very welcome. It's a delight. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, and leave a comment at the bottom. It really helps out. Mm-hmm.